Hello, horror and dark fantasy fans, and welcome to Jason Offutt's The Girl in the Corn. I'm Gabe Shear, and this is ChemCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each one of our episodes of Jason Offutt's thrilling horror title, The Girl in the Corn. The Girl in the Corn takes place in and around St. Joseph, Missouri, the birthplace of the Pony Express, and the place of death for outlaw Jesse James. This story takes readers to the country to meet the sinister things that lurk in the long, even crop rows of a farmer's field. This unputdownable book will keep you up at night, even after you're nestled in between the warm sheets of your bed. It's a book to live in. Thomas Cavanaugh is a small boy when he first encounters a beautiful fairy in his mother's garden. But when the fairy begins to visit him at night, Thomas learns that the seemingly innocent creature has more planned for him than he ever dreamed. The Girl in the Corn will resume after this short message from the CamCat team. Hey there, lovers of story. Do you find this book unputdownable? Are you itching to hear how it ends? Would you like to have a copy you can keep forever? This week, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway. One lucky winner will receive the audiobook of The Girl in the Corn for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry. That's it. It's that easy. Soon you can have your favorite CamCat audiobook in your ears and at your fingertips. So make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy! CamCat Publishing presents The Girl in the Corn by Jason Offit, Narrated by Josh Bloomberg For my sister Jody whose love of spooky things equaled my own. Miss you, sis. Part 1 Chapter 1 1986 1 A whisper of cool morning air rippled the curtains of six-year-old Thomas Cavanaugh's bedroom window, bringing with it the sweet breath of the lilacs planted outside. The hint of cow manure lingered, even after the breeze died. But the boy barely noticed. He was used to it. He sat up in bed, his mom's soft singing drifting into the room from the garden outside. Thomas liked it when his mom sang, the voice somehow as sweet as the flower's scent. He dressed, pulling on a He-Man and the Masters of the Universe t-shirt and black shorts, before he bounded down the stairs and outside to a long rectangle of a vegetable garden his dad had cut in the yard with his tractor and field plow. Sweet corn rose and straight green stalks in that garden, as did peas, cabbages, onions, and other vegetables he pushed around his plate until his mom got tired of waiting for him to eat and took them away. Strawberries were Thomas's favorite, but his mom had yet to work her way to the berry patch at the end of the garden. She knelt in the rows of green beans that grew closest to the house, her floppy straw hat hiding her short blonde hair, 
some song from the radio on her lips, as she pulled weeds with hands covered with big leather gloves. Thomas knelt in the garden, just like his mom, but he didn't pull weeds. Sometimes it's hard to tell the good plants from the bad plants, Tommy, his dad had explained when Thomas asked to help. Yesterday, the day before, last week, Thomas didn't remember. He liked to help. And if his mom had to pull those awful weeds, they must be awful if she wanted them gone, Thomas wanted to do that too. Today, though, Thomas simply waited quietly for his mom to work her way from the green beans through the sweet corn and to the strawberries. Sunlight shone through drops of dew hanging from the corn leaves, tiny, fragile diamonds. Thomas held his face close enough to the drops he could see their light split into colors. To him, they were magic. I call you on the phone, but you're not there. His mom's singing came softly through the sweet corn. She was closer now. I sit at home alone and wonder where. A smile slid across Thomas's face. She always sang in the garden. If she sang, she was happy. And if she was happy, she might let him eat a few strawberries without even washing them. Can't eat or sleep, I miss your touch. Clouds gathered over the garden from seemingly nowhere, swelling like an enormous bag of burnt microwave popcorn. The cool morning breeze was stifled, and a burst of hot air pushed against Thomas's cheek, as if someone blew across his face. The air popped, pushing against his eardrums. Huh? Thomas grunted, his voice too soft for his mother to hear over her Lisa Lohman song. She didn't react to the pop, or the clouds, or the hot burst of furnace air. Mom? He whispered, the word muffled as if he'd said it through a pillow. A corn leaf to his right shook, and he turned toward it. The long, blade-like leaf dipped. The sudden movement broke the dewdrop's hold on the plant, and the dew fell to the ground. Thomas froze and stared at the cornstalk, twice as tall as his six-year-old body, but still too young to grow corn. His mom's song dropped into the hum she used whenever she forgot the words, but Thomas couldn't hear her anymore, not really. The world became quiet and out of focus, everything except the cornstalk. A tiny foot stepped from behind the stalk about halfway up the plant and settled on a leaf. The foot had no shoes. The lithe leg attached to it had no pants. His throat grew tight as a woman, a tiny woman, slowly stepped from behind the stalk, stood on the leaf and smiled, her face radiating joy. Her smile was the only thing that kept Thomas from running. You've brought me pain, his mom sang, but the words sounded as if she were underwater. Why do you mean so much? The tiny woman, only as tall as the He-Man toys in his room, wore a shiny white dress, her hair red as a crayon. He leaned closer to look at her like he had at the dewdrop, but she stepped back to hide behind the cornstalk. He stopped and squinted. Her face was delicate and pretty, pretty like his mom's. Who are you? Thomas whispered. The little person pressed her fingers to her lips and shook her head. Thomas gasped. You're a fairy. Gloved hands pushed through the stalks about six feet away, 
and his mom stepped through. Her song stopped, and something popped next to Thomas. For a brief moment, pressure pushed against his ears. Oh, Thomas, his mom said, a grin pulling at her lips as she squatted at his eye level. When did you sneak out here? Are you ready for some strawberries? His gaze shot from his mom to the stalk of corn. But the little woman was no longer there. She's gone, he whispered. Who's gone, Bubby? He reached for the corn. Maybe she's still there. Maybe the corn is enchanted. Thomas liked that word, enchanted. He knew it meant magic, but it sounded even more mysterious. He touched the leaf. It was a deep green blade, streaked with parallel veins, surprisingly firm, but nonetheless just a leaf. Never mind, Thomas said, his voice trailing off. Yes, I'd like some strawberries, please. When he looked up at the sky, the clouds were gone. Two. The smell of hot fried chicken drifted across the table as Thomas's mom placed a platter shrouded in grease-stained paper towels in front of her husband. Mashed potatoes heaped in a Pyrex bowl decorated with orange and brown flowers sat in the middle of the table. A smaller bowl of lima beans was closer to Thomas. Honey, this looks wonderful, his dad said. He always said that because he was always right, and Thomas knew it. His mom's food was the best. His dad lifted a paper towel and stuck a piece of chicken with his fork. And I'm guessing Tommy wants a thigh, Thomas said. His dad grinned and dropped a steaming thigh on Thomas's plate. When I was a kid, I always went for the leg, Tommy. There's more meat on a thigh, Thomas said, spooning lima beans onto his plate. And it doesn't have that pointy bone thingy. His dad laughed. Thomas loved hearing him laugh. It made the whole house sound as happy as his mom's garden singing. His mom scooped a spoonful of mashed potatoes next to Thomas's beans, then put some on her own plate and handed the bowl to his dad. Tommy helped me in the garden this morning, she said, then smiled. So we don't have any strawberries for dessert. His dad leaned across the table toward Thomas, his elbows on either side of his plate. Well, it's a good thing your mother made fried chicken. I won't be hungry for dessert. Thomas forced a smile as he stabbed beans with a fork. He'd seen something today, something that didn't exist, and his dad was talking about dessert. The little woman didn't have wings, but Thomas thought of everything she could be, and he knew what she was. He knew it, he knew it, he knew it, but he couldn't tell his mom or dad, could he? The little woman didn't want him to. A knot began to form in his stomach. No, Thomas Cavanaugh, he scolded himself. No tummy aches today, not with fried chicken. He looked up from his plate at his mom and dad sitting at the short ends of the rectangular kitchen table. His dad bit a piece off a chicken breast. The golden flaky crust pulled off most of the skin, revealing the white meat beneath. His mom took a drink of water and set her glass down. Thomas breathed in deeply and said, I saw a fairy in the garden today. The clanking of forks on china died. The kitchen grew quiet. Thomas suddenly felt warm. His mom and dad's eyes were on him. He could feel them, staring.
You saw a what? His dad asked. Thomas's throat felt tight, and he had to pee. A fairy, he whispered. In the garden. His mom's hand gently patted Thomas's right forearm. A fairy, honey? She said, her voice calm, soothing. In the garden. What did it look like? He looked at his mom. She was smiling. Thomas's throat relaxed. The ball in his stomach grew smaller. Like a woman, a little woman. Was it a girl? His dad asked, the chicken still in his hands. Maybe she was lost. Thomas shook his head. No, it wasn't a girl, he said, his voice stronger. She looked like a grown-up woman. She was just little, like a doll. Tommy, that's just... His dad started, then stopped. Thomas looked at his mom. Just like the fairy, he knew she'd just told his dad to be quiet. She turned back toward Thomas. What did she do, honey? Thomas's tummy felt better now. His mom believed him, maybe. It didn't matter that his dad didn't. Mom did, and she was the boss. She stood on a cornstalk. She made the dew drop. His dad snorted. His mom flashed his dad a hard glance, then turned back to Thomas. Did she say anything? Thomas shrugged. No, she didn't say anything, but she told me to be quiet, like this. He put a finger over his mouth and shook his head. His mom leaned her elbows on the table. Why did she want you to be quiet, honey? It was because of his mom. But why didn't she like his mom? She didn't want you to know she was there. His dad opened his mouth to talk, then paused and took a bite of chicken instead. His mom's face tensed. Why didn't she want me to know about her? Thomas shrugged again. Maybe because she thinks you're scary, I guess. A ha shot from dad's mouth. His mom turned toward him. You're not helping, Kyle. When she looked back at Thomas, he was eating potatoes. Then what happened, honey? Thomas swallowed, took another forkful of potatoes, mashing it into his lima beans. She was just gone. I looked at you, then when I looked back, the fairy wasn't there anymore. He pushed the food into his mouth, put his fork down, and grabbed the chicken thigh with both small hands. Have you ever seen the fairy before? Thomas shook his head and bit into the thigh. The crust crunched as his teeth sank in. His mom glanced at his dad and smiled. Well, a fairy, she said. You don't see one of those every day, do you? She turned to Thomas, the smile never leaving her face. Three. His mom clicked the switch next to the door from the hallway, and Thomas's bedroom became dark as charcoal. The clock on the nightstand, its digital numbers red, showed nine o'clock. The golden hour of early summer had gone. The sun was just dropping past the horizon out one window as the white half-moon rose in the other. Soon, the stars would shine like pinpricks on black velvet. The milking barn stood in the east window. Once bright red with a black roof, the sun-faded paint had turned pink and begun to peel, the bleached barn wood beneath exposed. An owl hooted nearby. Coyotes yipped far away. Can you close the window? Thomas asked, 
a pull of fear coming somewhere deep inside. He didn't know why it was there. The open window had never bothered him before. His mom brushed his bangs across his forehead and smiled down at Thomas. Don't be silly, honey. It'll get hot in here. Just leave it open. The night air will help you sleep. But... His mom bent to kiss his forehead. Good night, baby, she whispered. Thomas wrapped his arms around her neck and held fast. Do you believe me? He asked. She smiled and brushed her hair from her eyes. About what, baby? She had to believe him. Moms always believe. Dads don't. About the fairy, he said, his voice soft. Her smile faded slightly, but she forced it to remain. Then she touched Thomas's face, her hands gentle on his skin. I believe you believe you saw it, she said, and that's good enough for me. She paused, studying her son's face in the faint light. Did it frighten you? Thomas shook his head. No, she looked nice. She was pretty like you. His mom laughed, then kissed him again. I'm glad she wasn't scary, but remember, not every pretty face is nice. He thought about that before answering. I know, Carly in my class is pretty, but she wipes boogers on my desk when Mrs. Beltram isn't looking. His mom slowly stood. I think Carly just likes you, but we're not talking about that yet. Good night, Tommy. Good night, Mom. Good night, champ, his dad said from the bedroom door, leaning on the doorframe with his large calloused hands shoved into his jeans pockets. His dad still had to milk the two Guernseys in the barn. Thomas liked the barn. He liked to search the loft for rusty treasures hidden under the old dusty straw. Thomas knew his dad didn't believe in fairies. He believed in work, sweat, and cow poop that smelled like money. His dad crossed the room to stand next to his mom, slipping his arm around her waist. I'm with your mother on this one, he said. I believe you believe. Now, get some sleep. You're going with me to John Deere in the morning. Thomas's eyes opened wide. Do I get to sit on your lap and drive? His dad glanced nervously at his mom and stood up straight. Only down our driveway, he said. I think you've gotten me into enough trouble for one night. Now get to sleep. Love you, kiddo. Love you too, Thomas said, his voice trailing as sleep began to crawl over him. His parents left the room and shut off the hall light. Thomas's eyes grew accustomed to the dark, and shapes formed, some as the light had left them, others shifting in the moonlight. Come on, Thomas thought. It's just the dark, and Mom said darkness can't hurt me. A cloud quickly passed over the moon, and a figure, tall and thin, loomed over him beside his bed. It's the lamp. It's only the lamp, tapped through his thoughts but the lamp looked like a man. A night bird called, and a yelp was caught in Thomas's throat. A fox yipped in the distance. Thomas kicked his feet until his blanket and sheet were balled up at the foot of his bed, his eyes on the figure that must be a lamp. It must be. The curtains hung motionless. The screech of the old barn's tall, heavy sliding door came through Thomas's open window. His dad was heading inside to milk the cows, but the moos Thomas expected never came. The cows always mooed. 
His dad said it felt good for them to get rid of all that milk. To them, milking was... A light, no brighter than a toy's, shone outside his second-floor window. His neck muscles strained as he tried to look toward that light, but a feeling like huge fingers wrapped around his head wouldn't let him move it. He tried to pull his legs up toward him, but they wouldn't listen either. Outside, the night animals had all stopped talking. Hello, Thomas, a voice said, the words soft and melodic, almost as if they weren't spoken aloud. The dim room grew darker. The bright, friendly moon no longer hung in his window. The light was gone. An empty feeling dropped into his chest. Thomas's pajamas grew wet. I peed. No, I'm not a baby. I didn't pee in my bed. Only babies pee in their bed. A fleeting image of his dad frowning flew through his head. Aren't you going to say hello back? Hello? The word came out almost too soft to hear. Shh, the voice hushed. Don't talk so loud. I can hear you. I can always hear you. The air closed in around Thomas, squeezing. His breath came in bursts. His heart thumped with the beat of a drum. A stranger was in his room. Who, who are you? A scream waited inside. Silence commanded the night. You saw me today, in the garden, the voice finally said. I want my mom, I want my dad. A tear leaked from one eye and mingled with the sweat that crawled down his face. A giggle echoed around the room, coming from nowhere and everywhere. The fairy, the fairy was in his room. The strange grip on his muscles relaxed, and he sat up in bed, scanning his dresser, his shelves, his Superman poster, looking for the fairy. The knot in his stomach was back. Go away, he wanted to say, but the words never made it past his thoughts. You're special, Thomas, the fairy said, the giggle tainting each word. So special. I want to show you to everyone. Will you come with me? There's something you need to help me find. The air weighed on his chest, compacting the scream wading deep inside into nothing more than a squeak. Go away. You don't want me to go away, Thomas, she said. You want to follow me. He'd wanted to go with her today, in the garden, to grab the enchanted cornstalk and follow her to fairyland. But that was in the light of morning, with his mom singing a Lisa Lohman song, not in the dark, when Thomas was alone and soaked with pee. He shook his head. No. The fairy laughed this time, the sound harsh. Despite the heat, Thomas's body shivered. I need you, Thomas. I'm just a kid, Thomas whispered, his eyes searching the room for the fairy that belonged to the voice. I'm by the window, the voice said. When you leave a window open, you never know what may come in. Then he saw her. The tiny woman stood on Thomas's toy shelf, next to Skeletor's Snake Mountain hideout. She didn't look bad, but his mom was right. Not every pretty face was nice. At the fairy's feet, a pastry, layered like a cake, 
sat atop one of his mom's good plates. Something curled at the top of the pastry. Thomas thought it might be chocolate. His stomach rumbled. Yes, it is chocolate, Thomas. She paused, though her voice sounded urgent, like when his mom tried to hurry his dad for church. When she spoke again, the softness had returned. The weight of the air lifted. I know you like chocolate. Just take a bite. One bite. Then you will understand everything. No, no, no. Something inside told Thomas this was wrong. No, thank you, Thomas said, his words louder, trying hard to gain control. He breathed deeply and then exhaled slowly, like his mom did when she was frustrated. His mouth was dry, so dry. The little woman stood next to the plastic mountain, hands on hips. Thomas knew what that look meant, but he was not going to eat the chocolate. All right, she said. I'll come back to see you someday, Thomas, and we'll talk about this again. The fairy's hands moved in circles, and a wave of purple light poured from the little person to Thomas. A yawn grabbed him. I have to go to sleep now, he said. Thomas curled into a ball around his pillow, pulled his covers up high, and fell asleep. Four. The scent of flowers again drifted in from the open window. The moon was long gone, the morning sun already poking above the line of trees that separated their farm from the county highway. The heat that had drenched his body in sweat was replaced by the cool air of spring. But there was something else in the air. Thomas sniffed. He slid a hand beneath the covers. The sheets in his pajama pants were wet. I peed the bed? When you leave a window open, you never know what may come in, repeated in his mind. The fairy. He sat up. The little woman was gone, but the plate with the blue flowers still sat on the toy shelf. Thomas pulled himself out of his wet sheets to stand on the hardwood floor. He stepped forward slowly. He scrunched his nose as an unpleasant smell invaded his nostrils. Something was on the plate, but it wasn't cake. A fat, fresh turd sat on his mom's good plate. He grabbed the lip of the plate and shook the turd out the window. It fell into the flower bed below. She tried to get me to eat poop, came out in a whisper. The blue and white plate clanked as he set it on the floor, a brown streak down its middle. He pushed it under the bed with his foot before walking to each window in his room and pulling it shut. Chapter 2 1990 1. Thomas pulled his arm back and threw as hard as he could, shifting his weight forward like his dad had shown him. His throwing arm snapped forward directly over his right shoulder. None of that sidearm stuff, Tommy, his dad said after Thomas caught a high fly ball and tossed it back with a flick. You don't have as much control over the ball that way. So Thomas threw overhand, and he threw straight, mostly. His dad pulled off his pioneer seed cap and wiped the late July sweat from his forehead with the sleeve of his once white t-shirt. Take five. I'm beat, Tommy, he said, 
as he walked over and sat hard on a metal lawn chair. I gotta get back to work. If your mom comes home and finds me playing baseball, she's going to think that's all I do all summer, when she's in the salt mines. He smiled at his son. Go get yourself a soda, Tommy, and bring me a beer, will ya? Thomas nodded, tucked his glove and the ball under his left arm, and jogged toward the steps of the wide wraparound porch. It was two in the afternoon, and his dad wanted a beer. When Danny McGinty's dad started drinking beer in the morning, things went bad. His dad didn't do that, not yet, but he didn't used to drink beer in the afternoon. Thomas approached the porch steps and stopped. Muddy footprints formed a line moving up the steps and across the chipped white paint, one after the other. Somebody's in our house. The knot, that familiar knot of panic in his stomach, tightened like a fist. Dad. I should get Dad, he thought. But he didn't get his dad. I'm ten years old. I can do it myself. Thomas's hand shook as he grabbed the handle and slowly opened the wooden screen door to the kitchen, the rusting spring creaking in the quiet air. He slipped inside and shut the door softly behind him. The kitchen of the old farmhouse was huge, designed when homes had tall ceilings and big windows, when people cooked and baked all day. He stood in the familiar room, his heart pounding in his ears because right then, the kitchen seemed like an alien place populated by monsters. The kitchen was empty and quiet. The only sound was the ticking of great-grandma Donnelly's antique clock in the corner. The door leading to the downstairs office was shut, and the wide archway into the living room revealed nothing. His mom's painting of the farm hung on the wall behind the dinner table, the house, the barn, the machine shed, and Bessie and Doofus standing in the lot, all as if she'd taken a photo of them. The footprints walked beneath the painting. Goosebumps rose on Thomas's forearms. Did the intruders stop? Did they pause to look at his mom's artwork? The ticking followed as he padded on worn tennis shoes through the kitchen, careful not to smudge any of the still wet prints. Then the clock's ticking became muffled, and the kitchen turned hazy and distorted, as if he were looking through an empty soda bottle. Thomas stepped toward the archway into the living room. Bring! He jumped. Bring! It's the phone. It's just the phone. Bring! Maybe it's Mom. I should get it. Bring! But fear wouldn't let his feet move him closer to the telephone. Bring! It rang again and the answering machine clicked to life. Hello, this is Kyle, his dad's voice said. Deborah, said his mother. And Tommy, said his own. We're not home right now, they all said. If you'll leave a message after the beep, Kyle continued. We'll get back to you soon, Deborah said. Thomas giggled on the tape as the answering machine beeped. Now he stood, nerves taut. Hello, Thomas, a familiar voice said on the answering machine. It wasn't his mom. It was the fairy, he whispered. His stomach wasn't just a knot anymore. It had been doused in gasoline and lit with a match. The muddy footprints continued into the living room and up the stairs to the second story, the prints growing smaller with each step. Thomas's baseball glove slipped from his armpit and landed with a loud slap and the ball rolled out of the glove, across the hardwood floor, and disappeared beneath the couch. 
Dad, rushed into his head. Get Dad. Get Dad. Get Dad, get Dad, get Dad, get Dad, get Dad. I'm upstairs in your room, the fairy girl said on the tape recording. Come play with me. A thud sounded upstairs, but a scrape from the living room swung his head back. The baseball, brass-stained and scarred, came rolling from beneath the couch, rolling toward Thomas, dipping and curving over every imperfection in the old floor. From behind the couch, a giggle. A scream tore from Thomas's throat, and the giggle turned into a laugh. He sprinted through the kitchen and out the door, the screen slamming shut behind him. His dad was on his feet the second Thomas bolted from the house, his eyes swollen in fear, his mouth in a silent scream. Tommy? Thomas tried to stop, but ran straight into his dad. It was like running into a tree. His dad gripped his arms gently in his big hands and bent to see his face. What's wrong? Thomas's hands shook. Tears painted his cheeks. There's somebody in the house, he said, his voice wavering, unsure. His dad knelt, tilting his head to look up at his son. How do you know, buddy? What did you see? Thomas took in a deep breath and brushed the tears from his face with his forearm. Footprints, he said, steadier now. Muddy footprints, and a voice, a giggle, it talked to me. His dad's mouth hardened into a grimace. Get dad, always get dad, he said. I did, he said. His dad jogged to his rusty Ford F-150, pushed up the front seat, and pulled his deer rifle from behind it. He chambered around and motioned Thomas toward the house. Stay behind me and keep quiet. Thomas followed. The once-friendly two-story house loomed over them as they closed the twenty yards from the truck. The second-story windows leered at him. The curtains in his bedroom window fluttered, then flapped shut. Something lurked there, hiding in his room. Something with muddy feet. His dad stopped, throwing a hand behind him to slow Thomas down. Shh he whispered, nodding at the footprints. God damn it, there is somebody in the house. His boot ascended the first step. The old plank creaked beneath him. Sweat dripped into Thomas's eyes, but he didn't wipe it away. He couldn't. The thing inside the house might move at any second, and he didn't want to miss it. He kept his eyes open as long as he could between blinks. His dad held up his right palm, and Thomas froze in mid-stride. His dad waved his fingers, motioning Thomas to the hinge side of the screen door. Open it, he mouthed. Thomas nodded and moved on tiptoes, his back pressing against the wall. His eyelids slammed shut, and he inhaled slowly. You're too old to be this scared, he thought. His eyes crept open, and he grabbed the handle of the screen door, the ancient hinges shrieking, as Thomas pulled it toward him. His dad stepped into the kitchen. The smell of this morning's sausage and pancakes still hung in the air, along with another new and unpleasant scent. Thomas inhaled deeply, and a cough scratched his throat, trying to escape. The stench of rotting animal carcass clung to everything. His dad waved him forward and he crept in. His dad strode through the kitchen and into the living room, swinging the rifle toward the couch, the curtains, the easy chair. Thomas paused long enough to look at the answering machine on the kitchen counter. The red light didn't blink. There was no message. Tommy, his dad hissed, beckoning him closer. Focus! Thomas trudged through the air that grew thick around his ankles, his every step labored as if the floor were mud. 
His dad didn't seem to notice as he stopped in the center of the room. A thunk, like someone had dropped a big fat dictionary, came from upstairs. Thomas's breath stuck in his chest. His dad swept the rifle toward the staircase. Thomas's baseball hit the second step, then the third, before it bounced down two at a time and skittered across the living room floor. Shit, his dad whispered, the rifle butt buried in his shoulder, his aim centered on the top of the stairs. The ball stopped at Thomas's feet. Two. Sheriff Boyd Donnelly tossed an empty Miller Lite can out the patrol car window, making sure it made the ditch. He couldn't care less about littering. It gave the convicts in county lockup something to pick up. He steered the Crown Vic onto the gravel lane that led to the Kavanaugh place. He figured it could probably get there by itself if he gave it the chance. Deputies were out of the question for the Kavanaugh's. The sheriff was family. Kyle and Tommy stood outside the house. Boyd slapped the gear shift into park and eyeballed his brother-in-law. What are you doing with that rifle, Kyle? Boyd asked. Deer season isn't for four months. Thanks for coming, Boyd, Kyle said. Boyd stepped from the tan cruiser and slapped Kyle's shoulder. Glad to do it. He grabbed Tommy in a bear hug and lifted him from the ground. How you holding up, big man? Okay, Tommy said. It's kind of creepy. Boyd put him down and mussed the boy's hair. Always is. His eyes swung toward the driveway, then back to Kyle. Debbie here? Kyle shook his head. I wouldn't tell her if I was you, he said. Little sis has always been a bit excitable. A soft smile crossed Kyle's face as he nodded. Tell me about it. Hey, Tommy, Boyd said before pointing at the house. Y'all want to show me these footprints before she does get home? Kyle led Boyd into the house and through the living room, Thomas following behind them. This is strange. Boyd stood at the bottom of the stairs, eyeing the muddy footprints. It looks like there were two people here, he said, pointing to the bottom of the steps. Because the footprints that enter the house are adult, and by the time they get here, they're the size of a kid's. Doesn't make sense. Feet sizes can't change, Kyle said, and people can't just vanish. Boyd tipped his felt Stratton hat back on his head and knelt on the stairs. He pulled an ink pen from his pocket, and he wiped it through the mud. It's just as wet as it looks, he said. Damnedest thing. He turned to Kyle. You been upstairs? Kyle shook his head. No, that's where the baseball came from, Boyd finished. His hand dropped to his gun belt and unbuttoned the strap over his service revolver. I'm going up. You boys are welcome to join me. It's your house. Boyd had been sheriff of Buchanan County 11 years, deputy five before that. He'd been involved in a shootout and a high-speed car chase, and he'd taken a statement from a guy who swore he saw a Bigfoot sitting on playground equipment at an abandoned elementary school. But he'd seen nothing like this. His heavy feet moved as silently as they could as he made his way up the steps, his weight on the outsides of each stair, where it was still strong and wouldn't moan. Sweat soaked into his hatband as he neared the top. Boyd breathed as if he were the patient in one of those hospital shows, right before the doctor broke out the defibrillator. The footprints led to Thomas's room, disappearing below the closed door. 
Boyd held an open hand behind him, and his brother-in-law and nephew stopped. Dad, Thomas whispered, but Kyle didn't answer. Boyd's hand formed a fist, and he hoped like hell his nephew knew to shut the hell up. His fingers deftly lifted the unhooked leather strap as he slid his weapon from the holster. Boyd had fired at a suspect before, hit him in the shoulder too. But that bastard was on meth and didn't feel a thing. He never wanted to shoot anyone again. Boyd pulled his shirt sleeve across his sweaty mustache before gripping the weapon in both hands. He sucked in a deep breath and wrapped a hand around the door handle, flinching as the old mechanism clicked. He pushed the door open and raised his weapon. The hot, coppery scent of blood engulfed him as he stepped over the threshold. A girl, about six years old, with dirty red hair, stood in the center of the bedroom, smiling at him. Her once white dress was yellowed with age, smudged with dirt. A red splotch dotted one cheek, like she was ill. She smiled. Who? Boyd began before her smile widened to her ears. Her teeth were needles. Boyd's arms dropped slowly in air that felt as thick as water, and he inhaled sharply. The girl waved bye-bye. Boyd's knees shook, the service weapon forgotten in his hands. The air pressure in the room changed, pushing against his eardrums. Then a pop, and the little girl with all those teeth vanished. Poof. Gone. Fuck me, Boyd whispered, leaning his shoulder against the doorframe to keep his shaking knees from dropping him to the floor. Three. The old lawn chair sagged under Boyd's weight, which was fine because he didn't plan on moving for a while, the late afternoon sun nearing the treetops. The porch was clean now. Tommy had mopped it just like his daddy said. Tommy's a good boy. The screen door protested as Kyle pushed through it. He slid a beer can into Boyd's hand. Thanks for coming out, Kyle said. You could have sent a deputy, but you came yourself. That means a lot, Boyd. I mean that. Kyle opened his beer can. The crack was so sudden and loud, Boyd flinched. Yeah, he said, then cleared his throat. No problem. I cleared the house. I, I guess someone's just messing with you. Someone with lizard teeth who can disappear like a goddamn stage magician. Boyd's thick fingers fumbled with the tab before his can finally opened. Yeah, Kyle said, but I don't know who would want to. Stupid teenagers, I suspect, Boyd said, his gaze settling on the garden where Thomas stood. That's where the prince had started. Deborah watered the garden this morning before she left for work, and someone walked out of the garden into the house, turned into a little girl as she made her way up the stairs, then she smiled at me while she vanished. He'd scribbled those words in his notebook. That little girl. Shit. Boyd hoped he'd just had some stress-induced hallucination. Anything, he thought, would be better than that girl being real. Whatever that was, your house is safe now, he said the words sounding like a lie even to him. We went through it good enough. An hour more into the afternoon, Boyd drained his can and slammed it down onto his thigh. He didn't want his brother-in-law to see how much his hand still shook. 
He'd been through six beers and thought another might do him good. Got any more? He asked. It's been a hell of a day. Uh, sure, Kyle said, and went back into the house. Tommy stood in the garden, looking back at Boyd, the boy's hair a mess. Hey, Boyd called to him. You okay, Tommy? The boy shook his head. Yeah, Boyd whispered. Me neither. Four. His mom's Ford Escort rolled to a stop at the end of the long drive, gravel crunching beneath the tires. Thomas looked up. His dad didn't move from under the hood of the dirty feed truck, but the socket wrench went limp in his hand. Uncle Boyd had been gone an hour. What's wrong, Dad? Thomas asked. He stood next to his father on the front bumper of the old truck. He knew he couldn't do much to help change the alternator except hold a light or a bolt or bring his dad a beer, but he wanted to be close to him. They'd been through something today and come out of it shaken but safe. Besides, he was too damn scared to go back into the house. His dad fit the socket on the last bolt that held the dirty gray engine part Thomas couldn't tell from the rest. She's late, his dad said. That means she had to lock up late, and that means she'll be in a bad mood. She'd been in a bad mood a lot lately. Thomas's dad pushed the wrench, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. The nut held fast, then popped, and he began to crank. Doesn't she like her job? Thomas asked. She never wanted to go back to work, his dad explained, the wrench clicking in his hand. She wanted to stay home and take care of you. So? Thomas's eyes focused on his mother as she got out of the car and stormed up the porch steps to the house, the same porch steps that earlier today were dotted with muddy footprints. His dad set the wrench on top of the radiator and looked at Thomas. So, farms aren't doing as well as they used to. We needed more money, and your mom wanted me to get a job. You have a job. You're a farmer. His dad's shoulders slumped, and he looked toward the house. Thomas followed his gaze, but couldn't see where he was looking. It doesn't pay the bills anymore. There was a teaching job open at the high school. That's what I went to college to do. Bet you didn't know that. Thomas shook his head. Your mom really wanted me to get that job, but I didn't apply. If I started teaching, there'd go my days, some nights, some weekends. He grabbed his half-empty can of Miller Lite and drained it before setting it back on the engine. It fell through the empty spaces between all the engine parts and landed on the gravel with a hollow rattle. Then I'd be a weekend farmer. We'd have to sell the hogs, the chickens, and Betsy and Doofus. I wouldn't be able to handle as many row crops either. I'd be too busy. Then you wouldn't be a real farmer anymore? A grin played at his father's lips, but didn't materialize. Not like I want to be. She's mad that she's the one who got a job. She wants to paint and have another baby. It's my fault we don't have that right now. His dad gently cupped Thomas's chin. When he moved his hand, the smear of grease he left felt heavy. Go get me a beer from the cooler, okay? I put a Dr. Pepper in there for you. Thomas smiled, although he didn't feel like smiling. He jumped down from the big truck's bumper and walked to the machine shed, its corrugated tin walls nailed to bare studs. Dust danced in the light that streamed through the dirty windows, a pane of glass missing here and there. 
drill press, air compressor, band saw, and machines Thomas didn't know dotted the floor. The shed usually reeked of oil and dust. But today? Today it smelled like his mom's garden in the spring. Thomas's steps slowed as he neared the cooler Dad had placed next to the engine from the old tractor. A plate holding a piece of cake sat on the lid, a sliver of chocolate curling from the top. He froze, the machine shop air suddenly thick. Bare footprints from the girl-sized feet that walked up the stairs to his room were visible on the dirty concrete floor. Where are you? Thomas whispered. Each dusty corner, each cobweb that ran up the wall studs, each shadow cast by a stack of junk his dad would never work on, held a secret. Something lurked in that darkness, something Thomas couldn't explain. He cleared his throat. I know you're here, he said, his voice shaky. I know you were in my house today. He stopped and listened for anything. His father grunted outside as he pulled the alternator from the old truck. I'm not eating your cake, he said flatly, picking up the plate and setting it on the concrete floor. Thomas opened the cooler and grabbed a beer and a soda. I know what this is. It's... He stopped and looked back at the truck. His father was still under the hood. Poop. His voice came out in a whisper. You're trying to make me eat poop, and I'm not doing it. A girl's giggle rang through the shed. Thomas turned and ran back into the sunlight. Five. Are you sure you don't want any ice cream and cake? His mom asked as he set his dinner dish in the sink. Cake? No, no cake ever again. I don't, Mom, he said, his stomach a ball of nails. I'm going to bed. His mom set her fork on her plate, tines down because that's what proper people do, and looked at Thomas. Do you feel okay, honey? Thomas nodded. Yeah, just tired, that's all. He paused, his attention at the window over the sink. His dad still leaned over the engine of the blue and red grain truck. How come dad didn't come in for supper? His mom's eyes dropped to her plate. He really needs to get that truck running. No, he doesn't. That truck was for the harvest, and the harvest was three months away. Dad just didn't want to come inside. Good night, Mom, Thomas said, and walked toward the stairs, wondering if it was time to start worrying about his parents getting a divorce. Six. Thomas didn't realize he'd fallen asleep until he woke in his bed and night had fallen. His right hand instinctively swept across his mouth, wiping away drool. The house was dark and quiet. He slowly pushed himself up. The fresh, earthy scent of the garden filled the room, but it wasn't coming from outside. It couldn't. The air conditioning was on, the windows shut. Creeping vines of fear crawled over him, pinning him to the bed. Where are you? He asked into the night. His heart beat loud to him in the dead quiet. I can smell you. What do I smell like? Came from the darkness as feet shuffled in the room. But Thomas couldn't tell from where. The sound came from all around. The garden, he said. Show yourself. I'm here, a little voice said. A girl's voice. The voice from the answering machine. That voice was in his room.
can't you see me? A soft glow grew in the window, and a small figure stepped into his bedroom. It was the fairy, but she was different. She had the same white dress and a round, smiling face framed with red hair, but the fairy was a tiny woman. This was a child. Hello, she said. Are you the fairy? he asked. The girl stood in front of the window where the fairy had stood four years before. It was the same person, wasn't it? But the fairy was small. This girl was eight, maybe nine years old, and close to the same height as Thomas. Yes, I am. She grabbed the hem of her skirt, stepped one foot behind the other, and curtsied. But I'm also me. That doesn't make any sense, Thomas said, his hands clenching fistfuls of bedsheets. Why are you here? I'm your friend, Thomas. The girl's voice, soft and sweet. She giggled again. I'm here to warn you. About what? Sweat beaded across Thomas's forehead. She laughed, but there was no humor in it. It was the cackle of a movie villain. Doither is coming, Thomas. It's coming here, to your house, and you must be prepared, because it's coming to eat you alive. The laugh disappeared from her voice. Let me show you what it can do. 7. Suddenly, Thomas was someplace else. He stood waist-deep in prairie grass and flowers, the pink, yellow, and blue blooms so electric he was afraid to touch them. A sparkling red bird fluttered in a deep blue sky. In the distance, a calm sea stretched to the horizon. Boats sailed on that sea, but were too far away for Thomas to see what they looked like. The gentle salt wind wafted a mingling of scents over him, lilac and cinnamon and rain on hot asphalt. He opened his mouth to shout for someone, anyone, but words didn't come. The air tasted of Twizzlers, then of winter, then of smoke. The landscape melted. This isn't real, he thought. It can't be real. Suddenly, on the hill where Thomas stood gazing across the fields of flowers dotted with trees, the trees burst into flames. Snow began to fall in great clumps, but melted before it touched the ground. In the distance, the sea boiled. Prairie flowers ignited and disappeared as the flames ate them alive. Snow changed to ash and buried the land in gray. The world whizzed by and fast forward. Smoke rose from craters of fire that burst through the ground. The once green fields of flowers and trees now bald and ash-covered. The few remaining trees bone white and limbless. Charcoal clouds stretched over what had once been the calm sea, but was now dry and littered with ancient boats and the skeletons of unfamiliar creatures. Thomas coughed. The air burned his lungs. Where am I? My home, a voice said. A hand, smooth and comforting, laced its fingers in his. Thomas jumped and screamed. It was the girl from his room. Wh what happened? Thomas coughed again and spat onto the dusty ground. I'm dreaming. I have to be dreaming. You're not dreaming, Thomas, she said. This can't be your home. This can't be anybody's home. This place is dead, she said. The grip on his hand tightened, and he squeezed back. He needed this hand in his, this soft, solid hand, 
before Thomas knew his mind would unravel. My world was once green and blue. And tasted like Twizzlers, Thomas said. What happened? She breathed deeply, then coughed from the smoke. Dither, the death, she finally said. It is always empty, always hungry. It feeds on worlds, leaving dust and smoke and sadness. The girl motioned forward. Come. A road, as gray as the landscape, ran under his feet and snaked down the hill, sometimes buried in dunes of slate-colored dust. Something moved in the distance, but he couldn't tell what. Smoke sent him into a fit of coughing. The girl pulled Thomas's pajama shirt to his mouth to try and filter out the polluted air, and they started down the road. A fire sprang from a fissure next to the road, igniting a smooth, barkless tree. Thomas jumped, his sweat-matted hair heavy on his head. Doither is power, she said. All-consuming power. It eats whatever is growing. It sucks energy, leaving death. They continued in silence. With the distant sea gone, the plains seemed endless. They passed through a field of boulders. Then Thomas saw them, filthy, ragged people bound to those boulders with rusted chains. They moaned, swaying as if caught in a breeze, but no breeze graced this awful place. Who are they? Compassion pulled from deep inside. Save them, set them free. A man, his teeth long gone, stood and leaned toward him, arms spread like a zombie's. Thomas jumped back, but the man had pulled the short chains tight, and he dropped into the dust. The gust of air from the chained man's fall struck Thomas with the stink of rot and death. Help! Help me! came through the man's crusty beard, the stench of blood reaching Thomas's nose. He gagged. Please! Please kill me! the man said. No, Thomas said. His head started to swim. I can't. Kill me, another voice said. No, kill me! Me, me, kill me! The rough voices called down the road. No, Thomas moaned. I can't kill anyone. I'm lost. I don't even know where I am. The girl held fast to Thomas's hand to keep him from running. The crusty man rose to his knees before Thomas. Fresh blood dripped from his wrists where the manacles bound him to the stone. Land of the fairies, the man said, a cough splattering blood near Thomas's feet. He pointed at the girl who held Thomas's hand. Her land, ain't this a fucking paradise? Why are you here? Thomas asked. The man cackled, more blood spraying the dry ground. Eat fairy food. Next thing I know, I'm here. The fairy played with me for a while, then this. He coughed. Then the thing with the teeth came and turned this place into hell. The girl's grip relaxed, and Thomas's hand fell to his side. He looked at her. Why are you smiling? He turned back to the bloody man. What's the thing with teeth? He asked. The bloody man's eyes grew large, terror gripping his face. It's behind you! Thomas swung around, 
the girl had vanished. In her place, a black wave of smoke curled on top of itself, rolling toward Thomas. He fell to his knees and screamed. A slit opened in the wave, and row after row of dripping needle teeth gleamed through the blackness. The thing's hot, fetid breath crashed into him with the stench of a sun-swollen carcass. Thomas woke, covered in vomit. 8. When Thomas's eyes opened again, his mom was sitting next to his bed, dabbing his forehead with a wet cloth. His dad sat on a chair in the corner of the room. Hey, you okay, champ? His dad said, hopping to his feet to join his mom at the bedside. Thomas tried to sit, but the room began to spin. He dropped back onto his pillow. His skin was hot, tight, as if he'd been in the sun too long. Mom. His mom held the cloth to Thomas's lips before moving it back to his forehead. Shh, don't talk, baby, she whispered. You woke with a fever. It's gone down, but you're sick. Just lie there. I'm not sick, he mumbled. Kill me. Please kill me, the bloody man had said. No, no, get me out of this place. Get me away from the bloody man. Get me away from the black. Get me away from the teeth. Hot, he said slowly, softly. It's hot here, Mommy. It's hot. There's a monster. There's a monster with teeth. Help me, get me home. Thomas's mother kissed his forehead, then dabbed his face again. You're dreaming, honey. You're home in bed, she said. And I know you're hot. I can get you some nice cold Sprite and a Tylenol. Would you like that? Thomas nodded slowly. His lids slid shut. Home? I'm home? Have you seen the girl? He mumbled before sleep grabbed him and dragged him under. 9. When Thomas woke again, sweat soaked his clothes. The girl, the dust, the bleeding man, the teeth. He sat bolt upright, eyes wide, heart pounding. He was still in bed. Thomas touched the sheets, then his pajama shirt. The cloth was real. He was really in his room. The nightmare was gone. Thunder rumbled in the distance. A storm must be rolling through. The dark, which Thomas had always embraced, now frightened him. Teeth lurked in the darkness. He slipped out of bed and stepped slowly toward his lamp. The lamp's shadow stood over him, and sometimes shadows lived. He reached to turn on the light, but a hand slapped his wrist. Don't, a voice said. A scream leaped from his throat, but it died in the unnaturally thick air of his room. It was the girl from the dead world. The girl who was the fairy. Strength drained from Thomas's legs, and he began to fall backward. The girl's grip kept him on his feet. Shh, she hissed. You'll wake your parents. She stepped from the shadows and took his hand, twisting her fingers in his. She wasn't the little girl anymore and she wasn't the girl from the hell world. She was his age now, and almost as tall. I want them awake, he mouthed, the words refusing to come out. She shook her head. They can't know what we're about to do. Thomas pulled his hand from hers and sat on his bed, 
No, this isn't right. Always tell Mom and Dad, always. Why? His fear was driven back by anger. You sent me to that horrible burning place. That was awful. Why shouldn't I tell my parents everything? She stepped toward him, her eyes an ice-cold black in the dark room. Thomas didn't shrink away, but was still. Despite the darkness that surrounded them, he could see her familiar face clearly, her red hair, her white dress. She smelled like a garden. That burning place was my home, she said, her voice quiet but powerful. The monster that destroyed it is coming. The burning will happen to your home tonight, unless you come with me. The monster, he whispered. That thing with the teeth? The familiar knot formed in Thomas's stomach. Doither. The death. The teeth. Row after row of needles, dripping with something vile. The gaping mouth, the rancid breath. She was right. It was death. She grasped his face, pulling it toward hers. You saw it, didn't you? You saw the teeth. Thomas nodded. What is it? She dropped his face and turned away. It destroys everything it touches. And it's coming here, Thomas. It's coming here tonight. It's going to eat your world. She swung back to him. You have to stop it, she said. How can I stop it? I'm ten years old. A nervous giggle burst from her. I once told you you were special, Thomas. You are this thing's opposite, and opposites can't survive together. Your touch, your embrace is poison to it. She gripped his shoulders. Embrace it. Stab it. Combine your blood. Blood? A hot flush swept over him. Sweat rolled down his back. That mouth had filled the sky. I'm not getting close to that thing. His words sputtered out. She cocked her head. Her dark eyes burned into his. But that is what you have to do. You have to share its space. Thomas turned his head. He couldn't look into those eyes anymore. Then what happens? It goes away, she said, because if it doesn't, everyone you know dies. Your mother, your father, your friends, everyone. Everyone dies, Thomas. The darkness, the loneliness of night, closed on him like a sack. Tremors shook his hands, but then the girl touched his arm and the terror flitted away. Why is it coming to my house? he finally asked. The girl stared at Thomas through squinted eyes. The path to your world is easiest here because of you, she said. You're a magnet drawing it toward you. He shook his head. How do you know this, any of this? I'm older than I look, she said, and I've come here with what I know to stop this monster before it devours the universe. She raised her hand toward him. Watch. A lavender glow grew in her palm. Then it flowed from her hand, caressing Thomas's forehead. A vision of the farm, gray and lifeless, flooded his mind. The Guernseys, Bessie and Doofus, lay in the barnyard, nothing but dry, cracked hide pulled over bones. 
The fields were dust, and tortured souls knelt chained to the highway, like the man with the bloody mouth. His mom and dad, his uncle Boyd, neighbors, lay on the rural road in dirt-streaked rags, toothless like the bleeding man. The monster Doither hung in the sky, licking its teeth with a forked black tongue. I don't want anyone to die, he said, or thought he did. Thomas didn't know. The tears on his cheeks fell onto the floor. Then, the girl said, slipping her warm, soft hand into his, we have to go, now. 10. Sheriff Boyd Donnelly rolled over in the queen-sized bed he shared with his wife. His arm reached out, but found only mattress. Maggie? Her name stirred somewhere in the meaningless tossing and turning he called sleep. He didn't sleep much, not really. A few hours of closed eyes, separated by a few hours of dozing in front of the TV, or if the weather was right, maybe a while on the porch, listening to those people who talk about ghosts and UFOs on AM radio. Maggie, he said, the word soft, muted. He looked at the clock. 1.30 a.m. Maybe she'd gone downstairs for coffee. Come on, Boyd. You know her gout acts up sometimes and she can't sleep. His eyes slid open, and reality pushed him fully awake. She wasn't in bed and wasn't downstairs. She was buried on a hilltop at Mount Olive Cemetery, and had been for a year. Boyd still woke most nights, expecting to find her beside him. God damn it. His feet hit the carpet and Boyd pushed himself out of bed. He settled onto the porch, the plastic cushion of his wicker chair wheezing beneath him. A slight breeze brought with it a nip of cool air. He placed a small radio on the table beside him and cracked open a beer can, the sound loud in the darkness. It was too early for coffee, he supposed. Another beer wouldn't hurt. He clicked on the radio, the volume just the way he liked it the dial already on the right channel. Boyd found the show one night when driving back to the station from a two-car fatality on US-169. The host talked about the Bermuda Triangle, and Boyd was hooked. He dropped his feet on the wicker footstool and took a drink, the cold liquid sending a chill through him. So, what you're telling me is the quantum physics people are right. Other dimensions exist parallel to ours. The host's voice was deep the kind radio people called a hired set of balls. The guest on the other side of the call cleared his throat. Yes, he said. There's a thin veil between our world and others. In some worlds, another Cap Freeman is right now interviewing another Gerald Anderson about this dimension. Other worlds look completely different. A lighter clicked, an inhale from a fresh cigarette. How different? Freeman asked, exhaling. Boyd imagined the man in a dark studio, cigarette smoke swirling around his head. A world where Ronald Reagan is still president? A world where World War III is raging? Cap Freeman paused to laugh, a deep rumbling chuckle. Although those two might be the same world, what about a world where they've found a cure for cancer? Yes, Anderson said. All of the above and more. More? Boyd took a long drink of beer and stretched, sleep tapping his shoulder. Of course, a world where the Confederates won the Civil War, 
a world where the asteroid didn't kill the dinosaurs, a world where elves and fairies exist. Freeman let go another long exhale of smoke. Elves and fairies? Now we're getting into another topic altogether. The cool breeze turned into a cold wind, and the trees in Boyd's yard moaned in protest. Not really, Anderson said. Cultures around the world, since the beginning of time, have passed on their stories of magic little people. European legends even have elves. Diminutive, malicious beings able to grow in size to look indistinguishable from you or me. That's how they use their mischief to trick unsuspecting humans. The half-empty can slid from Boyd's fingers and thunked on the old wooden porch, spilling the rest of his beer. These stories had to come from somewhere, Anderson continued. Why not another dimension? So you're saying, Freeman started, but Boyd's mind had gone somewhere else. Back to the Kavanaugh home. Back to the unlikely muddy footprints that changed shape, shrinking from an adult to those of a child. A child with inhuman teeth. Lightning flashed to the east, and Boyd looked up. There's a storm coming, he said mindlessly, picked up the radio, and walked back inside. 11. The floor groaned as Thomas stepped into the hallway, the open door to his mom and dad's room, a black void. His mom kept the heavy shades drawn. Like Thomas, she enjoyed the dark. At least he used to. Mom, he said, pausing at the door, waiting for a sound from the room, any sound to tell him his parents had heard the loose floorboard and were coming out to tell him everything was all right. Through his dad's light snoring, his mom's voice whispered, Thomas? He opened his mouth to tell his mom a stranger was here, that a monster was coming. But the girl squeezed Thomas's hand, and the words died. He turned toward the fairy girl. Shh, she hissed, her eyes wide. Thomas, honey? His mom's voice was heavy from sleep. Huh? His dad grunted. Get up, there's a stranger in the house, he tried to say but the words didn't come. Purple light grew from the girl's hand and drifted into the bedroom. Snoring followed. His legs moved without his permission, and he had no choice but to walk down the hall on bare feet. They reached the end, and the girl hurried him down the stairs. Outside, humidity turned the night to jello, and a distant rumble announced a coming storm. One of the cows lowed, Thomas thought it was doofus. The girl yanked Thomas's arm as he paused halfway through the barnyard. Come, Thomas, she said, her voice sharp. We must hurry. She pulled at him, and they ran into the cornfield, Thomas's mind shrieking for her to stop, yet his body responding only to her commands. Sharp, stiff leaves raked Thomas's skin. The corn. His dad always said never to go into the corn alone. It was easy to find your way out. You just had to follow the rows. But you never knew what hid there, waiting for a boy to get lost. A coyote yipped from somewhere inside the cornfield. This time his legs listened to him, and he stopped running. The girl pulled at him again, but he didn't move. No, he said. The word shaky but audible. A rumble in the sky was closer. I'm going back to my house. I shouldn't be here. 
a corn blade brushed his arm, the long, sharp leaf slicing a shallow furrow in his skin. It's coming, the girl said. Thomas's feet moved backward. The dry, hard dirt clods jabbed his tender soles. The coyote yipped again, a few rows over now. The knot in his stomach grew into a boulder. Why? he asked. Panic fell from his voice by the fistful. Why is this monster thing coming here? Her eyes pleaded with him to move. Because it's weak, Thomas. It's so weak, it needs to feed. On what? The girl tugged at him, but he didn't move. Life, she said, leaning close and poking him in the chest. It sucks out the thing that keeps your heart beating and eats it. People, plants, anything that breathes. Then its power grows so big, it swallows your world. He tried to yank his arm from her grip, but her fingers were too strong. No, he whispered. She opened her mouth to speak, but a yip from the coyote silenced her. The dog-like beast was close, somewhere to Thomas's right. A sniff came from behind Thomas, the sound almost inaudible beneath the hammering of his heart. Go away, he said, the words a whisper. Something growled behind him, and he turned to face it. Hunched low between the rows of corn was the coyote, its ears laid back on its head, its teeth bared. Thomas's mind lurched. The coyote wore a piece of clothing. It looked like pajama pants. No! He jerked his body back toward the house to run, to get away from the monster, the coyote, whatever was coming in the night. But the girl rested a hand on his shoulder, and the fear melted. It won't hurt you, Thomas, she said. Liar, he said, his voice small, flat. A sound, a cork pop from a giant bottle of champagne, shook the night. A change in air pressure threw him to the ground. The coyote yelped and disappeared into the darkness. The girl bent and whispered into his ear, It's here. She shoved something into his hand. He unfolded his fingers. The golden plastic snake head from his Snake Mountain toy sat in his hand. It was what gave Snake Mountain its name. It's for luck, she said. Lightning flashed in the distance. Come on, she urged. Thomas pushed himself off the clod-covered field onto weak, watery legs. Thunder growled in the distance. Was it one Mississippi or two Mississippi? Either way, the storm grew closer. The girl stood by him, looking into the clouds churning overhead, and the air smelled of rain and something else, the sweet smell of rotting corn. Thunder clapped and the ground shook. Thomas put out his arms to keep his balance. Something crashed in the corn over and over. Footsteps? Yes, giant footsteps. Be brave, Thomas, the girl said. It's coming this way. She walked beside him, her hand on his shoulder, but she sounded miles away. Don't make me do this, he whispered. You can't make me do this. I'm not making you do anything, she whispered in his ear. You want to do this. For your family. The monster has something I want, Thomas. You want to do it for me. And in that moment, he did 
want to do it for her. Cornstalks parted in front of Thomas like waves before the bow of a great ship, the stalks withering as Doither pushed them aside. Then, two boot-clad feet stepped where the coyote had been, and Thomas almost fell to the dirt, his heart pounding. His dad stood in the parted corn, about ten feet from them, in the middle of a bed of wilted, blackened stalks at his feet. It's not real, Thomas, the girl said, her hand falling from his shoulder. That's not your father. His heart pounded hard. Yeah, it is. It's my dad. He stepped toward the man who stood before him. Dad? The man nodded. Coyotes, six of them now, slunk out of the darkness and gathered by him, their eyes glowing green. The largest beast, ragged pajama pants hanging from it, brushed against the man's leg, its mouth open in a wicked grimace. Thomas stopped. His fingers tightened around the broken toy. Something was wrong with his dad. His arms were too long, his nose crooked, his... Thomas's body shook. Goose flesh covered his arms. You're not my dad, Thomas said. The farmer's grin grew, and his mouth, now too large for his face, opened slowly. Needle-like teeth, like the ones he'd seen in his dream, sprang from its gums. Row after row after row of them, like the corn they stood in. A deep laugh rolled from the mouth that was and was not his dad's. Hands grabbed Thomas from behind and held him up. I'm here for you, Thomas. The girl's words fought their way into his mind. He reached back and grabbed her hand. Don't worry about the animals. Focus on Doither. She squeezed his hand. Embrace the monster. Embrace it and stab it with your snake. Draw blood. Blood? Thomas stepped forward with strength he didn't know he had, the girl following behind. The lesser coyotes, the ones that followed the alpha, cowered as the children approached. Thomas raised the arm with the snake, the other behind him, gripping the girl. The creature in the corn, the one that looked like his father, smiled. The demon teeth spread across its human face. The coyotes turned and bolted, all but the alpha. It cringed as Thomas stepped closer, but bared its teeth. Just two more steps, the little girl said. Just two more steps. Raise your talisman. Raise the snake. Thomas's bare feet trod over rough clods, but he didn't feel the pain. He reached out to stab the monster with the snake, but the words, kill the boy, came from it in a deep rumble, and the big coyote leaped. The beast's canine teeth sank into Thomas's thigh, and something warm and wet rushed down his leg, blood and urine. The coyote jerked backward, its teeth ripping at the meat of his thigh, and Thomas fell into the monster, screaming. The broken, jagged piece of Snake Mountain he'd imagined stabbing into the monster flew from his hand and disappeared into the darkness as he fell onto the creature that looked like his dad, grabbing its pants. He didn't draw blood. Instead, he embraced the monster. Then, everything exploded. Chapter 3 1990 1. 
Bobby Garrett slept restlessly, the dream tossing him back and forth beneath his covers. The 14-year-old had never dreamed of corn, or farmers, or coyotes, at least not that he remembered later. His dream was loud and dark. Was it raining? Maybe. Then, a scream ripped him from sleep, his plain white sheets soaked in sweat and his coal-black hair matted to his head. Bobby's eyes shot open, the dream still clear, the cornfield, the farmer, the monster. Bobby stood on four legs. The farmer, in dusty denim, towered over him. Kill the boy, the farmer said. Death filled his thoughts. The chase, the leap, the taste of flesh rent by sharp yellow teeth, the warm gush of hot blood on his tongue, spurting from the sides of his snout. The room swam into focus above him, his muscles frozen in taut bunches. Corn remained in his vision, only for a moment. Stalks rose from the old ratty shag carpeting in his room and through his television set. As his consciousness cleared, the corn stalks faded into the night, but the monster that looked like a ten-year-old boy stood over him, holding a plastic snake, blood gushing from a ragged bite in his thigh. The monster, a boy? The leftover dream dissolved as footsteps hammered down the hall. Bobby's heavy bedroom door slammed against the wall, and his mother ran into the room. Bobby, she called, running to his bedside. He sat up, his heart hammering. She threw her arms around him. Bobby, baby. Her breath brushed his face. It stank of Pepsodent and Virginia Slims. What happened? He ran a hand through his wet hair, his heart rate beginning to slow. Just a bad dream, Mom. I'm okay, just sweaty. She squeezed harder. No, baby, no, you're not. Your pajamas are soaked through. She pulled back and dropped a hand to his sheets. So's your bed. You need to change your clothes, honey. Her hand rose to his cheek. You can change your sheets tomorrow. Why don't you come sleep with me tonight? His hand pushed hers away. No, Mom, gross. I'm 14. She backed away from her son, hands on her hips. Don't talk to your mother like that. Her words were weak. Who takes care of you? This again. You do, Mom. And who stays home to teach you all your schoolwork so you'll be a smart boy? She asked, her hands on her hips. His eyes dropped. You do, Mom. And who keeps you home, safe from all those bad people in this world? Home, where he ate casseroles and learned all about math and literature and history, just the good history. No unholy wars or riots for my baby, just the last 6,000 years of humanity on this big blue planet. He also watched the 700 Club with his mom while she smoked cigarettes and drank vodka tonics. Where's dad? he asked. He was never there when he needed him. She straightened, arms crossing her chest. He's at work, preparing for a conference. It's two o'clock in the morning. What are you trying to say, son? Her voice shook, her eyes welled. Nothing, Mom. It's okay, he said. I'll be there in a minute. Two. Fire and rain. Thomas lay in the dirt as fat, heavy drops pelted his battered body. A ringing deadened his ears. Lightning flashed in the distance. 
the corn lay flat, the falling rain extinguishing the spots of yellow flame. The world around Thomas grew dark. Tommy, his dad yelled, but the dim noise ringing in his ears could be from anywhere. Thomas! The night grew deathly silent. The rain fell harder, leaving rows and rows of scorched, flattened stalks. Oh, dear God! It was another voice, a higher voice, his mom's. Kyle, what happened? A thumb pulled Thomas's eye open. His mom's face swirled over him for a moment before the hazy world drifted into black. Call 911, Kyle, she ordered. Call. Three. The scent of sizzling bacon drifted up from downstairs. Bobby rolled over in his parents' bed. Pain throbbed in his right thigh as if he'd slammed it into a table. He pushed himself up, his aching arms and back evoking a moan his body as sore as if he'd spent all day cleaning out the garage. What happened, he wondered, until his dream warmed its way into his thoughts. A farmer, a monster, a cornfield, a coyote. I was a coyote, he whispered, as the dream began to drop from his memory piece by piece. Bobby draped his legs over the side of the bed and sat still, taking in the morning. His mom was downstairs in the kitchen, cooking breakfast. Where was his dad? Did his dad come home? Sometimes he didn't. More smells tickled his nose. Pancakes and fried potatoes. Vera, honey, his dad said, his tone soft, as non-threatening as a Smurf's. Can I get some more coffee? Bobby zombie walked to his own room to get dressed. His mom and dad always expected him to be dressed for breakfast. When Bobby finally reached the kitchen, his mom was standing in front of the stove, tongs transferring slices of bacon from a cast iron skillet to a plate layered with paper towels. His father sat at the kitchen table, napkin in his lap, suit jacket already on and ready for the day. Always be on time and look like you belong there was his dad's mantra. So when Bobby reached the faded linoleum of the kitchen, he was already in a white shirt, black tie, black slacks, and polished black loafers. He was ready for another glorious day of homeschooling and probably wouldn't leave the house today. But his dad wouldn't be happy unless Bobby was dressed like he wanted to talk about Jesus. His dad checked his watch. And three, two, one. He lowered his arm and smiled at his son. You're right on time and looking sharp. Looking sharp. Wow, dad. Bobby pulled out his chair and sat at the kitchen table, a plate and silverware already in front of him, and an empty place setting next to him as usual. The Garrett family always left a spot at the table for Jesus. His mom leaned over her husband's shoulder, a coffee pot in one hand. She kissed the back of his head and filled his cup. Got any plans today, son? His dad asked. Bobby's summer days were spent reading, listening to grunge low enough his folks wouldn't hear, and sneaking down to the creek to smoke cigarettes between homeschooling lessons that never, ever stopped. But his dad didn't need to know that. No, sir, he said. No plans for today. His dad spooned fried potatoes and onions onto his plate before moving on to a bowl of scrambled eggs. Well, that's a good thing, Bobby boy, he said, tapping the slotted wooden spoon on his plate. 
because we're going on a trip. Trip? The Garretts never went on trips. The Garretts never went on vacations. The Garretts never went. What kind of trip? he asked. His mom leaned over Bobby, placed two pancakes on his plate, and upended the syrup bottle over the short stack. Lots of syrup, just the way he liked it. Now come on, baby, Dad wants to take us someplace special, she said, her voice wavering. We should let him. We love Daddy. Bobby looked up at his mom's pinched face, then toward his dad, who was as calm as a fisherman. No, we don't love Daddy. Sure, he said, not believing anything that came from his own mouth. Sounds like fun. His father grinned and held out his hands, palms up. Bobby reluctantly gripped one. His mother took his. Let us pray, his father said. Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, please bless this meal we are about to receive. We are all bad, we are all sinners, and do not deserve this bounty. Please remove the wickedness from our lives and lead us down the path of righteousness. There is always a place set at our table for our Lord. Amen. Amen, Bobby repeated, and cut into his pancakes. 4. A call woke Boyd after he'd finally gone back to sleep. Cap Freeman's guest, Talking Fairies, gave way to some yahoo going on about numerology. He didn't like being roused from sleep by the telephone, and he liked it even less now that he'd heard what Deputy Kirkhoff said. Boyd pulled up to his sister and brother-in-law's farm for the second time in two days. What he saw was devastating. The cornfield, the whole damn cornfield, green and tall the last time he'd been there, lay pressed flat as if a hailstorm had beaten it to hell. Except there had been no hailstorm just lightning and rain. The field lay black, scorched by fire. A few stalks remained upright, but burned. Last night's rain took care of that. Pieces of a shredded anhydrous tank lay like eggshells across the destroyed field. Jesus. He slipped the transmission into park and pushed himself out of the driver's seat. Deputy Glenn Kirkhoff jogged to the cruiser, notebook in hand. An ambulance sat at the edge of the field, the blue lights on the roof still flashing. Two EMTs loaded a gurney into the back. Then Debbie climbed in, and an EMT followed her inside, shutting the door. The siren fired up, and the vehicle sped up the lane. It's bad, Sheriff, Kirkhoff said. An hydrous tank exploded, and what was left of the field caught fire, and the boy... What about my nephew? Boyd snapped. Kirkhoff swallowed. He's hurt. He was lying in the field right where the tank went off, but he didn't have a scratch on him, except for the bite. Bite? Yes, sir, Kirkhoff said. Looked like a dog or a coyote got to him. He's off to the hospital. Boyd figured that. I saw. A car pulled onto the long gravel lane and sped toward them. He recognized the vehicle. Local press is here, deputy. Keep them away from my brother-in-law. Boyd quickened his pace toward Kyle, who stood teetering at the edge of the field, his white t-shirt and pale blue pajama pants streaked with blood. What the hell happened here, Kyle? Boyd asked. The rain had stopped, but his black boots were thick with mud. 
Looks like a war zone. Kyle turned to face Boyd. Mud streaked his face, except for a line beneath each eye, washed clean by tears. A handprint of blood sat in the center of his t-shirt. Tommy, he stuttered. Boyd dropped his hands onto Kyle's shoulders. His brother-in-law wobbled on his feet. He might fall at any second. What happened to Tommy? Boyd asked, his voice level and calm. He... Kyle stopped and looked at the sheriff, his eyes finally registering who he was talking to. Boyd, Boyd, thank God you're here. What happened? He asked again. What happened to my nephew? Kyle wobbled on unsteady legs, and Boyd slipped an arm around his shoulders, walking him toward the cruiser as Deputy Kirkhoff corralled the local newspaper reporter. He dropped Kyle into the driver's seat, and his brother-in-law's head fell into his hands. Kyle, stay with me. What happened to Tommy? The eyes that rose to meet his were red and swollen, eyes that had seen things a parent should never see. Dead. His voice choked off. He was dead. Dead. Boyd's right arm shot forward to grab the car's roof and hold tight. What do you mean he was dead? Dead, Boyd. Weakness saturated each word. Debbie and me, we found him lying in the mud. The corn on fire all around him, but he wasn't touched. Not a burn mark on him. Boyd had once arrested a guy hopped up on PCP who had pummeled him with fists that could no longer feel pain. That had hurt. But the punch in the gut Kyle hammered him with now was worse than that by a mile. Then why do you say he was dead? He wasn't breathing. Kyle ran a forearm under his nose. Then Debbie, she dropped down beside him and started mouth to mouth and pumping his chest and all that. Kyle grabbed Boyd's free hand and squeezed. She saved his life, Boyd. He woke up. Pent-up anxiety whooshed out with an exhale. Debbie. Damn straight it was Debbie. She took a CPR class last summer. Hell, he'd taught it. Over the roof of the Crown Vic, an argument between Kirkhoff and Jennifer Blair ended with the reporter storming around the deputy and stepping over the line of yellow police tape. The boy's going to be okay. He's alive and breathing, and he's in good hands, he told Kyle, pulling his brother-in-law back to his feet. Now, let's get to the house before that jackal corners us. I gotta put on my sheriff face and ask you some questions. It's best to do that at your own kitchen table with some coffee, because I haven't had mine yet. Kyle nodded as Boyd tugged him forward. And some ham and eggs if you've got them. He draped an arm over Kyle's shoulders. Don't worry. If you can't tell by my slim figure, I'm pretty good around a kitchen. Five. The four-person tent Bobby's dad had hammered into the hard, baked earth at the campground was going to be a hot, miserable mess to sleep in. They were at Smithville Lake, Bobby knew from the signs, but they sure as heck couldn't see the lake from here. All he could see were trees and other tents. Oh... Yes, yes, a woman's voice moaned from one of them, an orange nylon tent two spots over. Harder, harder, hit me, hit me. The sharp slap of skin on skin snapped in the air. 
the woman screamed in pain before moaning, yes, again. Bobby's legs kicked beneath him as he sat on the tailgate of the station wagon, sweat already beating on his upper lip. I know what you're doing in there, he thought. Naughty, naughty. Bobby's mom cleared her throat and glared at his dad, then nodded toward Bobby. His dad sat in a lawn chair drinking beer, his eyes on the orange tent. Oh, God, moaned the tent. Todd, his mom said, the word carrying. She cleared her throat again. Todd? His dad turned toward her. Yes? Then shook his head like he'd only just noticed Bobby was there. Oh, shoot, his dad said. Hey, son. He pointed to the five-gallon water jug where Bobby rested his arm. Why don't you go fill that up at the shower house, hmm? There should be a spigot marked potable water. Make sure you fill it up from that one, okay, pal? Bobby lifted the empty jug, his ears still on the orange tent. What's potable mean? It means, oh, 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 the woman's shrill voice split the air. It means it's safe to drink. His dad downed the beer and tossed it into the fire pit. If it doesn't say potable, it could give us some kind of bacteria or parasite. He dropped his feet off the cooler and pulled out another beer. We have enough parasites in this world, son. We don't need to personally feed them. Maybe you could pay as much attention to your family as you are the orange tent, Bobby thought, as he grabbed the jug and slid off the tailgate. The hammer his father used to drive in the tent stakes sat on the picnic table, a 16-ouncer, its handle smooth from little use. Bobby saw his fingers wrap around that handle and lift it. An electric cord hung from the hammer. No, no, this was wrong. Not a hammer. I'm not going to kill my parents with a hammer. Bobby, his father said from outside his vision. But you will kill them, a strange voice said in his head. But I will kill them. Wait, what? Bobby had heard all sorts of voices when he knew nobody had spoken, mostly his own, and sometimes Scooby-Doo said things to him when he wasn't even watching TV. But this voice was different. It seemed more real than the other voices, but distant at the same time. He concentrated on his father, but good old dad's head was full of images of Tanya at work, screaming at him to hit her while they did it on the conference table. And his mom? She was worried about missing her stories if they stayed through Monday. That Tad Martin was up to something. Pathetic. Who are you? Bobby asked inside his head. Someone you need. Bobby? His father snapped, and Bobby's vision faded, the hammer still on the table. He'd never touched it. What? What the heck are you doing, son? His father asked. It was like you went someplace else. You're not playing with Ouija boards or listening to that Ozzy Osbourne, are you? Bobby slowly shook his head. No, sir. The words were soft and quiet. His father took another drink of beer. Good. That stuff's evil, son. That's what we're here to protect you from. Now, he said, go get that water. Hello? He pushed with his mind, but the voice never responded. It didn't need to. Oh, heck no. 
The voice had already told him what he was going to do. Kill them. His folks were asking for it, really. Now remember where we are, his mom called after him as he started down the trail. I don't want you getting lost. I'm not a damn baby, Bobby thought. Okay, mom, he said. He hurried around a bend and disappeared from the view of the temporary Casa de Garrett. His mom was no more likable than his dad. He paused for a moment to hear one last scream from the orange tent before the show was over, at least for now. A few tents and RVs appeared around the bend, a shower house in the middle of them. Bobby didn't like the look of the shower house, which possibly contained strange, naked men. A sign fastened to the building read, Potable Water. His dad was right, of course. He always thought he was right. He set the jug down beneath the spigot and turned it on. Water shot out and into the jug. Bobby's stomach clenched when that something inside his brain that told him what people were thinking before they even said it tapped a little dance on the inside of his skull. Someone lurked nearby. He could sense it. Just like his mom and dad had told him, it was somebody bad. A fist-sized chunk of concrete lay next to the building. He wrapped his fingers around it and picked it up. What you going to do with that, kid? A teenage boy said from behind him. Bobby jumped slightly and turned to face the boy. A lanky kid about his age stood a few feet from him, his shorts too short, his stained Batman t-shirt faded. The boy leaned against the wall of the shower house and grinned at Bobby with a smile that cut a crooked line across his face. Again, Bobby's stomach clenched. That boy was what his mom would call a no-good Nick. Go away, he thought. Go away, go away, go away. Hey, Bobby said to the voice, but it was gone, if it were never there. I'm going to throw it into the lake to watch it splash, Bobby said, and I'm not a kid. The boy laughed. Well, how old are you? I'm 16. Yeah, right, Bobby said. I'm 14. He shook his head. I gotta go. I have to take this water back to my camp. Bobby leaned over the jug, staring at the water gurgling in the jug, hoping like heck it filled up fast. It didn't. You want to see a dead body? The boy asked. Bobby froze. You do not have a dead body. The boy laughed again, the sound like metal on metal. Nah, it's not a dead body. It's just a snapping turtle. You're crazy, Bobby said. Snapping turtles are dangerous. Even before the frown grew on the boy, Bobby felt that was the wrong thing to say. The boy glared at him, his eyes flat, angry. I'm not crazy. I'm just having fun, and danger's part of the fun. So, you want to have fun? Fun? No fun, his mom would say. Fun leads to bad things, Bobby. You don't want to be a bad boy when you grow up, do you? If you knew I smoked, mother, you'd know I already have fun. He looked at this boy. He was exactly the kind of person his mom and dad kept him safe from. Ha! Go with him. Shit. Bobby screamed into his head. Who are you? Only the thing you need. 
Sure, Bobby said, squeezing the chunk of concrete hard enough his knuckles grew white. Bobby turned off the water. Let's go. The stained shirt boy led Bobby through a copse of trees and into a thick patch of undergrowth. Oh, that boy was a no-goodnik, all right. It oozed off him, with a scent Bobby couldn't really smell, not with his nose, but it was there nonetheless. The lake opened before them. Blue-gray water lapped a rocky shore. The morning was quiet, save for the faint hum of a motorboat on another part of the water. The smell of dead fish drifted past. It seemed the real world was a hundred miles away. Where's the turtle? Bobby asked, his already upset stomach crawling like it was alive. There's no turtle. The boy turned, his body inches away from Bobby's. Bobby could feel the boy's heartbeat, feel his heat as their chests pressed together. The boy's breath brushed Bobby's face with the sour reek of Funyuns. No, 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 this is bad, this is wrong, I have to go, I have to go. Tendrils of fear wormed through him, freezing his body. Bobby couldn't move. What are you doing? Bobby stuttered, his mind, clear at the water faucet, now scrambled like a plate of eggs. You know what to do. A hand cupped Bobby's scrotum through his thin polyester shorts. The boy gently rolled Bobby's testicles in his hand. The sensation shot through him. His skin flushed, his penis grew at the touch. No, bad, 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 rushed through Bobby's head. But the touch, the caress, he shivered. Do it, Bobby. I told you I wanted to have fun. You want to have fun, right? The boy moved his hand to the elastic waistband of Bobby's shorts and pushed it down into the underpants. His fingers grasped Bobby's penis. Do it, Bobby. Wrong, 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 wrong. Thoughts rushed to his mom, so close. What would his mom say? Do it. The boy looked Bobby hard in the eyes. His crooked grin with a dusting of mustache morphed into a smile, a wicked, wicked smile. Under the dark shade of the trees, the boy looked like Batman's Joker. Do it. She'd say you're bad, Bobby said aloud. She'd tell you what you are, a no good Nick. Do it now. No good what? The boy asked. As Bobby pulled back his right hand, the fist-sized piece of concrete still wrapped in his fingers, and smashed it into the boy's temple. The thud echoed across the waves. The boy staggered backward, his hand sliding from Bobby's shorts. Blood gushed from the boy's scalp, splattering Bobby's arm. Bobby grabbed the boy's Batman t-shirt, holding him up. You're bad, Bobby said. He pulled the chunk of concrete back, poised behind him. You're a bad boy. Bobby struck him again and again and again. The boy's eyes crossed as Bobby brought the concrete down on his nose. The cartilage crunched under the mass of rock, splitting the boy's face. He collapsed backward. An eye fell free of its crushed socket as his body splashed into Smithville Lake. Bobby watched until the boy stopped making bubbles in the murky, red-stained water. Then he dropped the bloody concrete in after him. Six.
The reporter tapped on the door, but Boyd ignored her and whisked six eggs and a splash of milk, pouring them into a warm skillet. A few minutes later, Boyd stirred the eggs and scraped them onto a plate. He set it on the table in front of Kyle. Kyle didn't move. His eyes glazed over. The reporter tapped on the door again, and Boyd leveled a look through the window. She didn't knock again. Where'd that anhydrous tank come from? Boyd asked, filling his plate before sitting across from Kyle. That yours? The plate of eggs sat untouched. Kyle? Kyle leaned back in his chair and took in Boyd, the glaze in his eyes still there. What? The anhydrous tank. Did it come from your property? His head shook slowly. No. No, it didn't. I think it came from Trent Lahone's place. The black leather-bound notebook lay next to Boyd's plate. He scratched notes into it. Then how did it get into your field? Kyle pushed out an audible exhale. I gotta go, he said, pushing his chair back, the wooden legs screeching across the tiles. I gotta go see Tommy. No, Boyd snapped, and Kyle sat still. You don't. He's got doctors and his mother. Not a damn thing you can do there. What you need to do is try and help me make some kind of sense out of this. Boyd jabbed a forkful of eggs. I'll drive you to the hospital myself, just as soon as we're done. Lord knows you're in no shape to get there by yourself. Kyle's shoulders slumped, the wind taken out of him. Yeah, okay. He scratched the graying stubble on his chin. Boyd had never seen Kyle look like something out of a zombie movie before. Where do you want to start? I guess at the beginning, Boyd said through a mouthful of eggs. What exactly happened here last night? Kyle leaned forward, his elbows resting on the table. The explosion woke us up, he said. There was the boom and a big flash of light. Stuff fell off the walls. He ran a hand through matted hair. Debbie went to check on Tommy, and he wasn't in his room. We found him out in the field. How close to the explosion? Boyd asked. I don't know, but if Tommy caused it, if Tommy caused it, he'd be in more pieces than a box of Legos. Boyd paused and lifted a knife to start on the ham. I don't believe for a second Tommy was involved in this. He's just too good a kid. He must have seen something or heard something and went outside to check. No. Kyle sat up straight. He wouldn't do that. If that was the case, he'd have come and got me. His words dried as he spoke. Or not. What do you mean? Kyle sipped his coffee. He didn't come get me when he saw the footprints. He went into the house himself. So, Boyd said, you're saying he might have gone off on his own? Kyle nodded and turned his face toward his plate. Boyd chewed. Something was wrong here. Somebody would have had to steal a tank of anhydrous ammonia, move it to this property without anyone noticing, and explode it. Tommy was ten years old. He wouldn't have the reason. He wouldn't know how. Hmm. You and Debbie cure this yourselves? Boyd asked, holding up a piece of ham with his fork. No. Kyle stood, walked to the coffee pot, and refilled his cup. He held the pot out to Boyd, who nodded. Picked it up at uh, Nadler's. It good? 
Boyd stuffed the piece into his mouth. Sure is. He chewed in silence as Kyle walked back to the table to refill his cup. Everything going okay around here? The farm, Debbie? Kyle held his coffee cup in both hands. Farms losing money, most are. Then the AG job at the high school came up and I passed on it. That when Debbie started at the library? Kyle nodded. And she resents you for that? Yeah. Boyd's knife screeched on the plate as it passed through the ham. This affect Tommy in any way? He act out, sass mouth, get in fights with his buddies, anything strange? No. Not that I can think of. Boyd, I really need to get to the hospital. The sheriff lay his silverware on the now empty plate and pushed himself to his feet. I know. Things are going to be all right. I'll find out what happened here. That's my job. And the ER doctor and nurses will take good care of my nephew. That's their job. He stepped next to Kyle and slapped him on the arm. I'll clean this up, he said. You go on upstairs to change your clothes and wash your face. You look terrible. Seven. The campground was dead. As dead as the boy. Everyone off fishing or hiking or napping. The shower house stood still, a concrete affront to nature. The men's entrance was open, revealing a black hole into the building. Bobby took a deep breath and stepped inside. Dim light filtered in from vents under the eaves. He exhaled. The men's side was empty, but he already knew that. The blood on his hands didn't want to come off. Bobby scrubbed his face hard, because it was tough to make out details in such little light and the mirror was only a polished sheet of metal screwed into the wall over the sink. The blood under his fingernails was the hardest to remove. He knew that was the part of today he'd remember. Not a bad boy touching his penis, not bashing the boy's skull with a chunk of concrete, not even the voice inside his head, but the blood under his nails that didn't want to come off. A shout echoed from outside, hammering Bobby to the spot. Ronald? A woman's voice yelled. Ronald Johnson! Honey, please come back to the tent. We're going to have hot dogs. So, Ronald was lost. A relaxed smile crossed Bobby's face. Maybe that's your name, mister. You want to see a dead body? Is it Ronald? He shut off the water faucet and walked outside. The woman stood by the door, her eyes eager. When she saw Bobby, her face fell slack. Oh, sorry. I'm looking for my son, Ronald. He's about your age, wearing a Batman t-shirt. Have you seen him? Have I seen him? Yes, ma'am, he said. Just a few minutes ago, he said he was going to play with a turtle down by the lake. He pointed toward the trees where the bad boy lay in the water. Her face brightened. Oh, thank you, thank you. You're such a nice boy, she said, and hurried down the trail that led to the lake. Bobby lifted the full water jug and went back to camp. Where have you been, boy? His dad said when Bobby came into view, gripping the jug handle in both hands. His dad didn't get out of his chair to help. Cheese and rice, son. I give you one little job and it takes you a month of Sundays to get it done. Kslip, kslip, kslip came from the picnic table where his mom sliced onions for the hamburgers. I was getting worried about you, honey she said, 
not looking up from the table. What took you so long? Want to see a dead body? He plucked a stray bit of onion off the cutting board and popped it into his mouth. Nothing really, he said. I just made a friend. Eight. Sirens cut through the late afternoon air as Bobby's dad took the burgers off the grill. Something's happening, his mom said. I'm glad we're here instead of out there. Out there is full of dangerous, nasty people. Don't you forget that, Bobby. Bobby choked back a laugh and spooned cold potato salad onto his paper plate next to the baked beans. There were, he thought, but not anymore. Right? Right? The voice was silent. Had I ever heard it? Bobby's dad walked a plate of burgers to the table, the meat probably still pink on the inside, because that's how Todd Garrett liked it, by God. Then he pulled another beer from the cooler, because that's what Todd Garrett liked, too. Boy, his dad said, before you fix your plate, you are to set out a plate for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But, Dad, Bobby held up a paper plate, would the Lord eat off this? The Lord was humble, son. He, I wonder what all those sirens are about, his mom said, cutting off her husband before he got too angry. Sounds like they're coming closer. A traffic accident out on the highway, Todd said. Or degenerates, they're everywhere. He pointed at the orange tent. Even places where a man takes his family. Before eating, the three held hands. Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, his dad said. Please bless this beautiful food we are about to nourish our bodies with. Bodies created by you, our most heavenly father. Please forgive us our wicked ways and lead us down the path of righteousness, leading us from temptation. There is always a place set at our table for our Lord. Amen. Amen, Bobby said, pulling a bun from the package and building his hamburger. Maybe somebody got murdered, Bobby said, a giggle somewhere near the surface. His mom dropped her fork. What on earth would make you say that, son? His dad asked through a mouthful of potato salad. Bobby shrugged. I don't know. Anything can happen at a place like this. Well, his dad said, there might be sexual degenerates here, but I certainly wouldn't take my family to a place where someone could get murdered. I mean, it's not like we went to Kansas City. A laugh burst from Bobby. Then I guess you should have left me at home. Robert Garrett, his mother started, but two men in tan law enforcement uniforms, one tall and thin, the other shorter and thick around the shoulders, appeared on the trail that led from the shower house and approached their table. Evening, folks, the tall officer said, approaching the picnic table. I'm Deputy Martins with the Clay County Sheriff's Department. This is Deputy Goner. A jolt ran up Bobby, straight from his solar plexus to his brain, leaving him with a wide, tight smile. A giggle bubbled out. His dad glared at Bobby before turning toward the deputies. Evening, officers, he said. What can we help you with? Deputy Martins approached the table and rested his right foot on the empty end of the bench. Deputy Goner stood back, thumbs in his belt. There's a dead boy, Martins said. Ronald Johnson, 16. His mother found him floating in the lake, appears to have been attacked. 
Bobby's mom inhaled sharply. Bobby's dad shook his head. Here? Here? What kind of place is the Parks Department running here, officer? The deputy nodded to Bobby. The mother said she was directed to the body by a boy about your age, about your size, about your hair color. Do you know anything about Ronald Johnson's death? Now see here, Bobby's dad sputtered. Yes, sir, Bobby said. The deputy dropped his boot to the dusty ground. What can you tell me? He pulled a notebook and pen from his shirt pocket. What's your name, son? Giggles racked Bobby's thin frame. The smile never left. Bobby, he said. Robert Garrett. Ronald took me to the edge of the lake and played with my dick. A stifled yelp came from his mom. His dad's half-eaten burger dropped to his plate. My God, what are you talking about, Bobby? The beer, the shock, slurred his words. Have another beer, Dad. And? The deputy asked, his shoulders rigid. Bobby bit into his hamburger and chewed slowly. A spot of ketchup oozed at the corner of his mouth. He didn't wipe it off. The boy was bad. He was real bad, Bobby said, his voice wavering with more giggles. He couldn't stop them now. They came out in jumpy waves. So I hit him in the head with a piece of concrete because a voice in my head told me to. His face cracked open like a Halloween pumpkin and he fell in the lake. A laugh burst from Bobby. Deputy Goner stepped closer. Then the water got all red. He laughed out loud again. He couldn't stop it and didn't want to. I killed him. I killed him because he was bad. He turned his face to Deputy Martin's, his expression blank. You can never tell a person's motivations until they have a hand in your pants. The air seemed to go from his mother, the wind sounding like a deflating balloon. Bobby's dad tried to stand, but his legs wouldn't let him. Bobby, son, please tell this man the truth. Please tell him you were joking. Please tell him that, Bobby. This is a serious thing to admit, the deputy said to Bobby. Are you sure you're telling the truth? He lifted up his wrists. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Bobby, no. His mother's words nearly inaudible. Deputy Goner approached Bobby and grabbed his right wrist, turning him and grabbing his left wrist. Bobby didn't struggle. I'm afraid we're going to have to take your son to the station to question him further, Deputy Martin said, facing Bobby's parents the click of the cuffs around their son's slim wrists loud in the late afternoon. Are you arresting him? Bobby's dad asked. No, sir, Deputy Goner said. Procedure. If we find your son's story corresponds with the evidence, it's likely we'll arrest him. You'll be allowed to come to the station as well, but I'd let your wife drive. Tears streamed down his dad's flushed cheeks. No, Bobby, you didn't do this. We didn't teach you to do this. Neither did Jesus, Bobby said. The smile never wavered. But I did it anyway. Please take me away, deputy. Ronald Johnson touched my dick. He was a bad boy. So I bashed in his head with a chunk of concrete. I killed Ronald Johnson. I'm ready to go.
Bobby's dad reached feebly for his son, but Bobby stepped closer to Deputy Martin's. The deputy pulled a business card from his chest pocket and set it on the picnic table. This is where your son will be held, he said, and walked away, Bobby escorted by Deputy Goner. A scream tore from Bobby's mom as his dad tried to hold her when the deputy led Bobby down the trail and out of sight. 9. Thomas woke in a bright white hospital room his mom and dad sitting in cold metal chairs at the edge of his bed. An IV tube snaked from his right arm to a plastic bag of clear liquid, and wires sprang from beneath his hospital gown and attached to a machine beside the bed. Every few seconds, the machine beeped. Where am I? he asked, his voice dry and hoarse. His mom nearly leaped from her chair. Tommy, she gasped. Tommy, baby. She took his hands in hers. Why are you so dirty? Tommy asked. His dad moved to the other side of the bed and took Thomas's other hand in his large rough ones. Son. His dad was crying. His dad didn't cry. What happened? I'm in the hospital, he said. Why am I in the hospital? You don't remember? His mom asked. Tommy shook his head. The movement made the room start to spin and he pressed his head deeper into the pillow to make it stop. There was an explosion, honey, his mom said. You were in the explosion, out in the cornfield. There's a bite on your leg. The EMT said it looked like a dog bite or a coyote's. Do you remember that? No, he whispered. His dad squeezed Thomas's hand. That's okay, son. It'll come back. What's important is the doctor said you're going to be all right. You're one tough kid. Your mom, his words shook, did the right thing, a lady's voice finished for him. A doctor walked in, so young her face was still without wrinkles. And you should thank your lucky stars she was loving enough to take a CPR class. She paused and lay a hand on Tommy's arm. It's good to see you awake. His dad smiled at his mom over Thomas's bed, and she smiled back. Thomas hadn't seen that in a while. You don't need to stay here long, the doctor said, addressing Thomas. We're going to move you upstairs for today, maybe tomorrow too. Then you can go home after the rabies shots. They're not fun, but necessary. Don't hate me for it. But because of your mother's fast action, you're going to be just fine. Thomas closed his eyes and took a deep breath and thought, she can't read the future. What a chilling introduction. Little Thomas saw a fairy in the garden and nobody believed him because, well, kids see a lot of things and fairies don't exist, right? Wrong. The question is, will Thomas learn the identity of this fairy girl? Tune in to episode two to see what happens next. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, 
they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are always available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.